Hi, welcome to the Artificial Intelligence, Machine Learning and Data Science Weekly Podcast. My name is Kwan Hong, or you can call me KH. In this show, I'll be talking to AI, ML and data science practitioners around the region. In each episode, I will dive into relevant and interesting AI, ML topics, where you get to know more about topics ranging from AI, ML adoption, best practices, and tips and tricks to be a better AI, ML data science practitioner. Hi everyone, after a long hiatus, welcome to another episode of AI, ML and Data Talk Podcast. In today's episode, I'm happy to have Yudish Ravinda Nat, who is the ML Ops Engineer at Money Lions, has a guest for, guest for the show. Hi Yudish, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thank you for having me. Yep, so I think uh, after a long, like I said, after a long hiatus, uh, I've been <laughs> meeting since the uh, end of last year, maybe for enjoying my long Chinese New Year and again, uh, maybe coming to Raya already. So uh, similar to other podcasts, in the beginning of the show, I'll ask the guests to do some self-production. Maybe you can talk something about your childhood, your education, and then uh, what leads you to be your current job now at, uh, as an ML uh, Ops Engineer at Mali Ryan. Okay, yeah. So um, yeah, hi everyone. My name is Yudesh. Uh, I'm a Machine Learning Operations Engineer at Mali Ryan. Uh, so growing up my childhood, <laughs> it's interesting. I, I'm actually a bit baffled that I somehow ended up in like AI space. That wasn't what I initially wanted to do. Growing up, I was very, very much into, uh, I think, very typical, you know, either become doctor or engineer, you know, Asian family. <laughs> so uh, I always wanted to be like a neurosurgeon. Uh, but then I was like, okay. Then, uh, then I sort of realized that I, I can't look at blood. I actually will throw up. So no, no being a doctor at all for me. Um, yeah, and then like going through SPM, PMR, you know, high school, still wasn't really sure about what I wanted to do. Um, I was leaning towards more engineering stuff. Uh, so I actually initially wanted to do, you know, like my engineering. But then uh, after, like, uh, after I did, I did my A-levels and um, then I sort of decided that, hey, you know what, I actually like computers. Uh, let me get into uh, computer science. Um, it's very interesting also as well because um, I, I mainly got into computers because like, I, I really like playing video games, like first-person shooters. So I was like, okay, maybe like, I can do like game stuff, you know, like make games or things like that. Um, uh, <laughs> when, I, when I took computer science, when I, took, I started, I started at Asia Pacific University, computer science. Um, I, I actually honestly took the subject because I like computers. I didn't really know that there was a lot of programming involved in it. <laughs> Um, and you know, it was actually quite surprising for me that um, initially, like, I actually didn't really like programming at all. I, I think, like, almost like even like halfway through my university, uh, I still didn't think I could become a programmer. I always thought I was going to become like a business person side of tech. Um, but I, I, and so I, what ended up changing was that I sort of realized that, you know, I wasn't doing it the right way. I was thinking that, you know, if, if I'm spending this much time and I still can't, you know, like get a for loop down, I can't understand like what a class is, you know, like then I, I'm just doing things wrongly. And so uh, I did this mind shift, mind, mindset shift in my, when I was coming to my internship, at my internship. So I was, I found a couple of companies to go do my internship and none of them were really interesting to be honest. It was very mundane, boring stuff. Um, but at that time, I started having like a bunch of ideas about you know like doing my own thing, like startup. And my I talked to my one of my lecturers who was like, uh, she was a lecturer for one of these modules that was like an intersection between business and computer science. And so it was mainly about getting those people with ideas and who can actually build stuff to actually come up with like some sort of company. And so uh, from there, I actually did my 
I, I, I took a very, very dramatic turn and did my own startup as my internship at uni. Um, uh, I, I had no idea what I was going to do, what I was doing. Um, I had no idea how a startup worked. I could barely program. Uh, and the program was also very, I was the first batch at APU that did this. Uh, I think now they have done progressive, I think like five, six batches right now. Um, and it's grown huge. Like I think they have like startup competitions all over now. And they even have like, um, uh, at the end of their current startup program, they even bring in like venture capitalists to come and like, uh, for you to pitch to get investments. Uh, and so, um, during my startup uh, time, I did my internship during my startup. I sort of initially was working on uh, green technology. Uh, I was trying to see like, hey, could we do something to help uh, Mother Nature in some way with my, what I was doing? Um, and and so what I landed upon after a lot of pivoting was um, this interesting thing. So uh, in the middle of doing this startup thing, I my dad, he works as a supply chain manager. Uh, and back then he would... Uh, have to go to uh, and check on uh, deliveries for certain companies. Uh, like literally, you have to travel from like KL to Sakin Chan, uh, which is quite far. And, and I, in the middle of the night, he has to go and check on this, uh, for example, like poultry deliveries and make sure like everything is being done to set standards. Um, and he had to go all the way there and come back. And I was thinking to myself, like, why does he have to manually you know, do this? Isn't there a better way? So. My startup was about, uh, it was called Fresen Solutions, and we were mainly about enabling tracking and traceability of your temperature-sensitive uh, deliveries, um, for example, like poultry. Um, and it was mainly about data collection and like giving you that real-time dashboard that you could view about your shipments, because it wasn't, it was, it's actually quite surprising that Malaysia that don't have that. Um, and that's when I saw, okay, there's an opportunity for me to step in and come up with something that would actually be usable. Uh, and so like, that's what I did. Uh, a lot of, I think I went through like, I, I lost count how many startup pitches I went, how many startup competitions I went to. Initially I was pivoting it towards, you know, being something like a green solution because like, you know, if you can track your temperature sensitive items and make sure that things uh, uh, are kept in proper temperatures, then they last longer and you end up wasting food. That's, that was my, that was my uh, way of, that was my, my problem statement. But um, the very difficult thing to say is that a lot of people don't care about that. <laughs> if you're a business, you don't care about, okay, I, I want to save money. Your, your, your main thing is like, can I save money? You know, that, that's yep. the thing. So it's a very interesting uh, learning process whereby I had to learn that the hard way multiple times just pitching that and not many people just getting it. But the moment I started pitching it as something to save money, <laughs> I actually won like my first startup competition and um, got in, we got like funding from, uh, we got a little bit of funding there, like 5,000 ringgit. And um, also we got accepted into the Sunway iLabs uh, pre-accelerator program. So it's like, that's an accelerator program for startups where they like boost you to get through, uh, to get your product out and whatever. But there's like a, a level before that with like a larger group of startups. So we got like, uh, the good news is that we got like access to a lot of industry help. And also we got uh, AWS credits. Um, and that's why I sort of had to leverage whatever we got in terms of AWS credits to start building our MVP. Uh, I, I still remember vividly, like uh, when it came to building our MVP, we did, I did it in React. Uh, it was a React dashboard. And then the backend was uh, some AWS Lambda functions with API Gateway. And it was connected to a DynamoDB table. And we had like these sensors that would um, be that are, uh, that are using uh, Bluetooth through a mobile app and then it would send it through there. That was like the first MVP. And that was like the first time I actually 
you know, had to force myself to code to build it. And it was amazing because it worked and I, I everything started clicking and all it took was just solving problems that you face, you know. I think going back to our education system, especially in unis, like when they teach computer science, they don't do this. They teach you, you know, like, uh, yeah, here, here's a class, super class uh, human, then subclass, I don't know what, that they don't, they don't have that problem application solving. Application sizes. Yeah, yeah, the applications are built in. Yep. I think, I, I feel like a lot of people in my course as well struggled. They thought, they always thought they couldn't do it. They couldn't program. It's, I don't think it was that. Uh, obviously, programming is hard and you need a lot of effort to get it to work and get things to understand because it's just not natural, you know? But I, if we could, you know, change our education system whereby we get a lot of app, apply, you know, computer science, I feel a lot more people will be picking up programming at a faster rate. Yeah, you know, I, I mean, uh, coming from myself as a uh, with a with fifteen years experience at academician, I, I I truly understand your pain because uh, a lot of students they, they when they when they actually attend lectures related like for example mathematics calculus, they don't see especially when it's taught purely by a mathematician uh, because if you are computer science, if I go to learn all these mathematics, I don't see the usefulness of it to my work. But then, if you if you if you I I'm sure if you know that if you're going to delve deep, deeper into AI, you you would you, you would need a lot of calculus and a lot of mathematics. So that's yeah. why I think that like you said, if you if if the lecturers can can actually you know link the application side and the theory side, then they when as a student when I learn, I can see that the application side that I that probably will will actually um uh, how I say maybe to the interest will be much 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 higher than uh, compared just learning the theoretical part of it. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And yeah, so 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 going on from that, um we built our MVP and you know, I was securing uh, uh potential clients and I mean potential POCs with certain companies. Uh for example, uh, at one point we got a contract uh, we we were in line with Village Grocer to uh potentially let them try out our solution. Um but then a lot of things fell through um you know, with startup we have people who with I'll just put it this way. You have goals that are misaligned. Some people want something. Some people want money. Some people want to actually solve problems. And long story short, uh, we ended up missing out on a lot of these things because um, of the misalignment. Uh, and what ended up happening was over time, I kept trying to make it work. Uh, tried trying to find people, but I, you know, I just didn't have the funding. You know, I was like right out of uni. And at that point of time, I decided, you know, maybe it's time for me to move on and move on with my career and move on. But it was a very good learning experience. Um, it taught me so much. I went from someone who couldn't even speak in front of my friends to being able to speak in front of hundreds of a hundred people when you're pitching. You know, I learned how to speak with simple language. You know, I learned how to code and build stuff. I found, you know, I was really passionate about it. I really just love doing it. It's so much fun. Uh, and I mean, regardless of whatever happened, I always think that doing something, trying to solve your own problems via some sort of startup is probably one of the best ways to actually grow as a person, at, at, especially when you're early on in uni. So I really, if, you know, if you're a university student and you're really looking for ways to grow, I think that's the one of the best things you can do. You know, just say, hey, I'm going to work on this crazy idea and I don't care if it's going to work or not. I don't care if I'm going to burn all my money. It's okay. Uh, obviously, you try doing it when you live with your parents because if you fail, you can still... Uh, I get support from them. Uh, I mean, it's it's much more difficult when you're like past uni and your own working. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, there's another path to that. Uh, I do agree. Like, uh, if you if you if you participate in any startup, 
that you actually grow, it actually mold you to be a better person, especially when you want to pitch to investor because you really need to think about the business side of it, not not just talking about the technical side. Of it. Then uh, when you when you when you need to pitch to investor, especially investors who are not very technological savvy, you really need to explain things that, like you said, uh, tone down the, the 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 explanation and make people understand. But another way of doing that, I also realized that uh, you also uh, for students who maybe might not want to jump into startup. They can actually take up like a competition like hackathon. It's the same thing actually. When you go for yeah. hackathon, you 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 develop some MVP or POC, then you present the solution to your judges. It's kind of the same thing actually. Yeah, actually that's a good point because most of the startup competitions I went to were technically classified as hackathons. Yep. Yeah. So they are they were like a bedrock for building that entrepreneurial mindset in students. Yes, yes. Because when you go for hackathon, also they will also look at what 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 is the business value of this solution. It's, a, it's kind yeah. of the same thing. Then when, when you want the hackathon, then probably you will think, oh, maybe I'm going to form a company like, like what you have in mind that <laughs> you go for all these startup competitions. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, and I actually, like, at APU, I currently, like, sort of mentor them when it comes to their startup programs. They, when they have, like, startup competitions, I get invited out to be a mentor to help students. And I, you actually see a lot of students, I think a lot of people who can win these startup competitions, even then, they still don't have the confidence to actually say, hey, I don't think... I can do this full time, even though they can win and I think they can do very well. They just don't have that, you know, like mentality that I uh, to actually try it out regardless. You know, like if you fail, it's fail. It's okay. But uh, I think that's something that you, it's very specialized of individuals that are, you know, risk adverse. And I mean, I mean, they're, they're honed to risk. They want to take on risk and they're okay with it and they're okay with the uncertainty. Yeah. And, so after, so after you you gave up on this startup, you actually went to found a, a stable job. Yeah, yeah. So um, okay. So um, yeah. Just just speaking about how did I get into AI. So my startup actually did have this core idea regarding AI. So, uh, one thing I was really interested in was that I was really looking into the future with uh, with the way that we're getting all this data and such. Was that hey, if we could try to leverage this data to sort of come up with some optimized expiry date that exists for your items, you know, because in, in for example, supermarkets and such, when your poultry comes in, they always have this expiry date. And then after that, people don't want it. And the thing is, it, it's just actually like the estimation. It's not like things you can't eat it after that. So, uh, but a lot of supermarkets do to keep up with like imaging, they don't want to make the items look very nice and such. And so they tend to put uh, pessimistic, uh, expiry dates and so i wanted to give like a more representative expiry date and that was where i sort of like thought hey maybe you could use ai for this you know if we get data have some feedback to we could come up with it and i had this little device uh, uh in malaysia we don't really have this but in other countries they have the e-ink displays for your uh, items that you buy um, i was in thinking about integrating the expiry date right there into the item uh, that was like one of the first things that I, that was like a main idea and I pitched it to uh, investors as well. Um, some people liked it, some people didn't like it. Uh, but uh, that was really where I saw, you know, potential for AI in use in supply chains. And after that, I also, that I, I, I this was, a, the startup was, uh, at the same time, I was actually doing my degree. Uh, and I was taking all my optional modules at APU and they were all, all on AI. Um, so, for example, I took uh, computer vision. Most of my classes are just computer vision classes. Like uh, we started off with license plate recognition using Tesseract and OCR. Then we moved on to object detection. Um, 
and that really i had a really good lecturer um his name is dr hamam i think he he actually used to work at memos like he was a staff researcher or something and but he left recently and he went to sweden i think so to be a lecturer there full time um he was one of the actually one of the few people that would sit down with me in my in my classes like back when i couldn't understand what a for loop was he would sit down and show me like hey this you can do a nested for loop you know this is what you can do so i think uh, i i i really um really do miss how he used to teach me i think he he was so very fundamental in getting me to like ai and get into programming uh and his classes were one of the most fun classes because they're super difficult he he did a super uh, did this um different thing compared to all other lecturers is that and especially in his uh, his object detection class he would get us to present our findings each week to the entire class it was a very unique way of uh, doing things because i think a lot of lecturers they just like okay each week you just teach you like you just teach you this thing and then you forget about it and then you don't care but then he gives you work to do at the end of the week and then he asks each group to present their findings and such so it's a very he was instilling you know that um behavior of presenting your work and learning how to talk in front of people which i think is something that a lot of people in this field tend to lack so i really do uh so he really did uh instill that uh confidence and uh need uh, and learning abilities i mean the one to learn ai it was mainly from him yeah and also i did my fyp on ai so i did like uh, uh so you know in tesla they have uh, that drow driver drowsiness detection thing so if you you're drowsy you're like alert you things like that in the car so i did that with like a mobile app uh and that was when i really had to learn how to make a mobile app and integrate deep learning models into uh your mobile application so i did it in for example uh, the mobile app was some react native and the model was a tensorflow model uh and it was deployed in the device using tensorflow js so it's a very very interesting project i i still remember like wow this idea is so cool and i actually had no idea how i was going to do it but i was very happy that i somehow managed to get it to work even though it was a bit subpar <laughs> It was it's very interesting because like that that was like my first time dealing with like relatively big data. I had like 150 gigabytes of video data, and I I learned you know how to train a deep learning model. I, even though it was like just fine tuning. I mean, so trans I was using transfer learning. Uh, I didn't want to train it from scratch because I only had like 400 uh, cloud credits on GCP. That's why I trained it on that deep learning uh, image image if I'm not mistaken. You know, I learned I learned a lot about you know hey you need to make sure that your data is located in the same place as where you're training in otherwise you're going to take otherwise your epochs are going to take like 2 3 days um it was all this interesting and edge cases things that you never really know and i was like so blown away doing it and i was very happy that i managed to get through it um in the end but that that was my experience uh at at uni and so at the same time uh i also started doing like some work as a ml engineer because i was very interested in working on projects like this but i couldn't find a place to you know give me the experience uh, but like i i always thought you know like is there some sort of organization like kaggle where i can you know apply for projects i can work on these uh projects or competitions and then uh, but the main focus here isn't about you know building the best model it's more about actually working with people on some sort of machine learning project and that's why i discovered omdena um so i did um a good two three projects with them just uh, and also omdena is a bit unique organization so it's like uh, ai for good company so um they allow you to apply for projects that they do with you know startups and these startups are usually for uh, they're not like they're they're non profits and so 
you work on a particular project and each project has maybe like 20 to 30 people, you apply for them, they all have really, really interesting use cases. Um, and from there, you sort of um, uh, work on the project with a team. And that's really it's really disorganized in a good way because it really, if you want to take up the, low, the, the lead role, you go ahead and you take it. And they don't care if you're some guy who's a junior at uni. As long as you have that will to do it, they'll let you do it. And I think that was such a powerful thing. And I, I mainly got my experience in real-world machine learning from them. Uh, yeah, as I mentioned, I did like two, three projects. They were mostly NLP-based. Um, and yeah, that, that was like my first foray into real-world machine learning, just seeing how messed up it can be, how data is not in casual competition size, you know, it's not in a CSV for you. Sometimes the data is not even there. You have to come up with it. Um, yeah, and that was like my main part into getting uh, actual machine learning experience. And so by the time... I graduated, uh, so this was about uh, February 2021, uh, was when I started looking out for jobs. And so I applied to Moneyline. At the time, I didn't know what Moneyline was. I just saw, I was like, okay, a FinTech New York, okay, let me just apply. I was applying a bunch of other places. Um, and I was applying, uh, and I was also, so I was, when I was interviewing, I was interviewing at Grab as well. I did, I applied for Grab as a full stack software engineer. Um, and I was having in both final interviews with Grab and Moneyline. Uh, so Moneyline, I, was, I applied as a data scientist, but Grab, I interviewed as a, I applied as a full-stack software engineer. So I was having interviews back-to-back -back between uh, in the same week for final interviews, and Moneyline was the one I made through. Grab, I unfortunately failed at the last stage. Uh, but it's okay, it works out. Um, I think uh, I'm, I was happy either way. I honestly think I... Prefer, I, I prefer staying in the job I got right now. So I ended up uh, joining Moneyline as a data scientist as in the machine learning operations team. So at the time, I was, I, was, I was still unsure, you know, because the interview process was like a very, very heavy data science, data analyst type of uh, job, you know. That's why it was painted to me. But at the time when I joined, I was, I, during the interview, my, my current, my old boss sort of asked, hey, are you interested in MLOps? You know what? I, and I just like, I remember I did read about it like for five minutes. And I was like, yeah, yeah, actually I'm quite interested in, in it. And then lo and behold, I get thrown into the MLOps team, which is a very, very small team at the time. I think it was only around for about six months. And there were four people, including me, in it. And they were right at the it was a very found it's a foundational team. They were still proving business value. And none of us had any skill sets that were necessary, but we all just wanted to work in MLOps. We all came from a variety of backgrounds. Some people came from, you know, pure stats background, physics. Other people came from more gen uh, generic software engineering type roles, but we all were classified as data scientists, but in a specific team at Moneyline. And yeah, and that's how I sort of uh, initially worked on. So when I started working at Moneyline, I was working on uh, continuous training pipelines for machine learning models. So this is a R&D project. Um, whereby, okay, so machine learning models, you can uh, deploy them in production. Okay, for, for example, when I mean deploy them in production, I mean uh, at Moneyline, for example, we deploy all our models as API endpoints that you serve in real time. So for example, you have a credit scoring model and when a user applies um, for, for, let's say a cash advance, um, the model acts in real time to determine, to allow or disallow that uh, cash advance and, um, Sure, you have a model that's in production right now, but over time, you know, user pattern changes, data changes, you have things like 
data drift. Data drift is when your features sort of drift over time. The distribution drifts compared to the distribution the model was trained on. And so how do you handle this type of scenarios? How do you handle other scenarios where, you know, you might have concept drift, uh, but let's not go into that. Let's just talk about feature drift. Um, the simplest thing you can do is just retrain a model on new data. Um, but then it gets a bit more complex, like, okay, uh, sure, you want to do it now once, but then continuous training sort of tries and answers, say, okay, let's build like an automated way to do it at any time or on a fixed schedule. So you could have continuous training pipelines. This pipeline that runs, that basically fetches the data from the model, prepares it, trains the model, and pushes it to production, like in an automated way. Uh, it was a very, very, very difficult uh, project. And so the model I worked on was a credit scoring model. There are a lot of factors you have to think about, which are quite interesting because firstly, you need sufficient, you, you, you need to run this pipeline somewhere. Uh, initially, we ran it on Apache Airflow. So at my name, we use Apache Airflow for uh, data orchestration, uh, but it's mainly used for data engineers. Um, that's why I had to learn how to really, you know, how Kubernetes work, how Docker work, how to build like Python CLI applications. I mean, I sort of knew how to build machine learning models and all that and pipelines, but I never knew how to get them to work in a scalable manner, like running on Airflow. So that's why I had a lot of learnings to do. Um, and so, so when you talk about learning, uh, this is kind of like on-the-job learning. Do you do your company provide you time to learn or you really have to learn on a site and then apply those learning uh, while doing the job? Uh, it's more like applying while learning on the job, yeah. Okay. Yeah, so... For, for me, it was I, I sort of anticipated that I needed to use Apache Airflow. So I on my own, I self-learn as well. Um, but it's also on the company job time. So for example, I got a book uh, from Manning called uh, Data Pipelines with Apache Airflow. Is it? Let me just search. Yeah, it's a Manning book. Uh, it's a great book that I read through and got a concrete understanding of what... Uh, Airflow works and how sorry how Airflow works, and for me personally, like I think uh, one of one of my core just just going off on a tangent here is that I think the best way to learn a lot of stuff is reading books about it. Uh, I know you can do courses and such. Yeah, I'm sharing it in the chat. Um, but for me personally, the the amount of information you get from books is substantially more than any YouTube video, any Medium article, and such. And so I, I really do practice this of continuously reading books all the time. Um, yeah, and, I, and one of my favorite publishers is Manning. If you want any book about data science or AI, Manning is really good. It's very, they're very underrated. I know everyone thinks about O'Reilly, but Manning is also pretty, pretty much up there. Yeah, and that's how I sort of learned Apache Airflow on my own. Uh, I also had great support from our data engineering team. Uh, I learned, you know, how how to do CI/CD processes, you know, build Docker images, push it to a doc, to your registry, and then reference them in your DAG pipeline using a Kubernetes pod operator. Uh, and I learned that, and I learned how difficult it was to build a continuous training pipeline on my own. And I was what my boss and other people referred to as someone more engineering inclined than data science inclined. Mm -hmm. So um, then I sort of thought about, hey, if well, the, the main goal with it was that let's see if we can create, I mean, the end goal was to create an, a template whereby, you know, normal data scientists could build these pipelines on their own. And I thought to myself, this is not going to happen. <laughs> so you can't expect data scientists to know CICD. You can't expect data scientists to know Docker. They can barely write decent Python code and then you want them to build these super complex data pipelines. 
Um, at the same time, obviously, you could have uh, a specific role, like an ML engineer that does it. But then when you add on more roles and more people into the conversation, um, one of the biggest things that you will find is that, especially when it happens, you work with large team, is that communication overhead. Like you have the scientist that builds the pipeline, then you have the ML engineer, then they both have to communicate, and then they have the DevOps guy, and then they all have to communicate, and just keeps adding, adding, and on, and it becomes more difficult. So if the idea was that if you could get the scientists to do like 90, 80% of it, and then we have that one role, which is the ML ops engineer to assist them any way possible, then we can cut down our communication time significantly. And so uh, I was, at the same time, I, since I mentioned I, I like reading Manning books, I came up with, uh, so I found this book called Effective Data Science Infrastructure uh, because I was also very interested in data science infrastructure because I started seeing, like, I started asking myself, hey, how are we going to support more complex pipelines? How are we supposed, going to support GPU pipelines? How are we going to support uh, pipelines that are event-based triggering? How do we build that? I was, more, I was getting more and more into the infra side and this book here really helped me answer that. And so this book is by Billet. Billet is uh, also the creator of Metaflow, uh, uh, which I'll be talking a bit. And he was the uh, he was the uh, engineering manager. He was an engineering manager at Netflix. So he, alongside another person, uh, Sabin, Sabin Goyal, uh, Sabin like was a tech lead and man, uh, the same team with Billet. And they both created and built Metaflow. And Metaflow, basically what it does is it allows data scientists to you know build pipelines do, so basically, do do data science with less infrastructure. So they don't really have to manage and play around or manage all that stuff. You know, everything works. They just have to write Python code and things run on the cloud effortlessly. And so back then, uh, this was about a year ago at this point, where at the start of last year, I, I read through this book and I was absolutely blown away. Uh, I felt my mind open. I was like, yep, this is, this is what we need, you know. This is what we need to do at Moneyline and what we need for our data science stack. And so I went through that uh, a process of getting it on board. So I first talked to my director uh, of machine learning and also my boss about it. And one thing I really like about Moneyline is they give really abundance of uh, freedom and they really prioritize innovation at the organization. So even though I was barely like six months in the company, they were letting me do POCs on complex things like building your own, uh, like metaphor, like, uh, and so I started be, be, uh, planning. Be, be, on... Before that, I want to ask, uh, what makes you think that, uh, I, I mean, besides company giving you opportunity, what makes you think that, uh, uh, I mean, from your perspective, what makes you think that uh, uh, Money Lion has a chance on you to give you, uh, do some uh, complex, uh, uh, complicated POC? Is it because of personality or because of the passion? Or because of your deep interest, or or, or before, or, or probably you have shown something to the company that that, that they have this kind of trust on, on you. What do you think? Uh, um, that's interesting. I would say because I found I faced a problem and I wanted to come up with a solution for it. I think allowing the person who actually faced the problem to come up with it is pretty is the best way to do a POC or like uh, come up with a solution for it. You know, uh. Obviously, you could have gotten someone like more senior to try and do it, but if it's not a problem they face, they don't really understand it enough to, to lead the effort. Uh, secondly, I think also maybe I was I was quite outspoken and you know I was very willing to say it uh, to say I didn't like certain things and also that 
I believe there's a better way. Uh, I think in this industry, you have to have this belief that um, you have to have this thing. I, I actually apply this thing. So it's called uh, strong beliefs loosely held. So you you got to be confident in what you say and such. And you got to be a bit, you got to be unafraid to say controversial statements about things. You know, you can, you know, like say, hey, I believe uh, Python is better than R for data science, you know? Say things like that. You don't be, be don't be afraid to say your opinions out in front of a room of people, even though the experts are what have that confidence in you, um, because a lot of times, like I notice, people in the industry tend to be quite uh, hidden, introverted, and don't really want to take on controversial statements. Like they don't want to say things because they're scared. Um, when you do it this way, I sort of realize is that if someone can prove you wrong, it helps you learn better and faster. So if you go out and you say things a bit more controversial, uh, you can always see that you can be proven wrong quickly as opposed to, you know, keeping it to yourself and never saying it. And then you just keep inside. Oh, actually, I know. I think it's but, better, but I don't want to say it. But it's a balance. Uh, if you keep on saying things that controversial and then uh, always proven wrong, then you become like you are just... Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's a good point. Yeah, don't, don't, don't be too cocky and just assume you're right on everything. Like, yeah. It's a good balance that you need to maintain. Yes. <laughs> okay. Uh, be- before you move on to the metaphor, I this com- something uh, quite interesting. Uh, just uh, just a kind of question because just now you were saying that uh, there are some organizations there where they have a distinct uh, separation between the data scientist, the data engineer, the ML engineer, even the ML engineer. But it mm-hmm. seems like you, your direction is you try to cut, like you said, the communication overhead. Uh, so you want the data scientist to do most of the job and then just pass down to the ML ops engineer. Uh, where I see that they are trying to reduce also the job of the data engineer or even the ML engineer. Uh, do you think that uh, there is a need to be, like you said, uh, if there is a need to have a separation, don't care, if you're not looking just on the communication overhead, why do people still have like data engineer, ML engineer, and ML ops engineer? Whereas like like you said, uh, you, you want to just focus on the data science, scientists doing all the job and then just pass the, the deployment and everything to the ML ops engineer. Why, why, okay. why, yeah, why, why do some organizations still practice this? Some organizations still practice this. I think mainly um, just one caveat with the way I think I described um, to get that end state where data scientists can do like 80-90% of the work on their own is that it takes a lot of effort from specific niche roles like ML engineers, data engineers, MLOps engineers on their end to, act, to create abstractions whereby data scientists can do it on their own. So initially, you, you're going to have to have the specialized roles to really, you know, sort of come up with the solutions and have the skill set necessary to do it. Um, but over time, once they sort of abstract this out and, you know, they create, like, you know, templates for building continuous training pipelines or they create, they deploy tools like uh, Metaflow to help you build your machine and the infrastructure pipelines without ever managing infra, um, then uh, it becomes... Uh, then their, their roles become less needed in a sense, but they're still needed uh, for maintaining infra. You know, for example, like MLOps and you still have to maintain the compute cluster, but it's like a separate thing that they moved on to. In in this sense, that like you minimize the bottleneck, uh, sorry, the communication overhead uh, over time. So I think it's like a natural progression over time. Uh, companies are going to, it's in multiple stages. Yeah. Okay. Um... Yeah, another another probably general question is uh, what 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 do you think is the main uh, difference between uh, DevOps and uh, ML Ops? So like you said you have already CI/CD or whatever, it's kind of like inherited from all what the DevOps is doing. Isn't it? 
Uh, yeah, so um, this is a great question. Um, I can you can sort of think of MLOps like a a DevOps person, but for ML stuff. So you know when DevOps right was was uh, introduced, people were seeing that hey, you know you can bring a lot of business value using software. Um, but you know there's an assumption here is that um, the software that you create, for for example, you have this valuable system in traditional software that um, it runs it needs to run reliably without human supervision and it needs to produce correct results. And so um, DevOps was brought in to, to bring in you know, set standards and set practices that enable them uh, you know, via automation, CICD, testing, and such. And now you can think of it like another paradigm shift where we have ML-powered software, where ML-powered software differs from uh, traditional software in that ML-powered software has an additional need for data and ML models, but it's still a valuable system and it still needs to run reliably without human supervision and it needs to produce correct results. And that's where MLOps engineers come in to the picture compared to DevOps. So you can think like it's, it's a separate role. They, in ha they actually have a lot of overlap in skills, but um, MLOps engineers are catered to uh, machine learning specifically. Okay, so I'm kind of interested like the, what you say about the uh, Metaflow. So I just read about it. Metaflow is something by Netflix also because it's from the guys who created the basic architecture that have been using Netflix. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So maybe you can uh, explain more how you use uh, Metaflow uh, in in, uh, in Moneyline. Okay, so um, I can okay I can explain. Uh, so at Moneyline we use uh, Metaflow. We're still in the process of onboarding more use cases, but the initial use cases that we used it for were mainly for trading our recommendation systems. Um, we're investing in recommendations at Moneyline. Uh, I can go into too much detail about for where and what, but uh, their recommendation systems are extremely complex pipelines that need to be run. Uh, for me personally, I think recommendation systems are the most complex use case of machine learning you can find out there even more so than, you know, generative AI and such. And um, why do I say that? Is because recommendations have not just a single model, they can have multiple models to build up a system. If you notice, I didn't say recommendation model, I said recommendation system. They make up multiple different pipelines that come together to serve as a system. Um, and, you know, that, that that's where we started using uh, Metaflow in because we wanted to prove as fast as possible, like, hey, that's it business value to using Metaflow. Um, and so we use Metaflow with it, for example, for our data pre-processing and also our pipelining to retrain the model. Um, and Wells, one of the first use cases. Um, there are other use cases, but I can't really go into them. But uh, one of our other big use cases at Moneyline is that, uh, so at Moneyline, all our models are, you can de are deployed in real time as A2 endpoints. And one fundamental thing that we also included that was what this was one of the main things we firstly introduced via the MLOps team, which was model monitoring. So, as I mentioned just now, like I was talking about feature drift with continuous training pipelines and such, but how do you actually know all this stuff? Like, how do you know that your data model has actually drifted? How do you know all this? Uh, and that's how model monitoring comes into play. So, at Moneyline, all our models are monitored via Arise.ai, it's a monitoring model monitoring service. Um, and Basically, think of it like a UI, uh, a dashboard that you can track all your models um, 
and all metrics that are related to feature drift concept uh, uh feature drift for example so I, I sent you a link in the chat and um there's there's okay so how do you do model monitoring there's two pipelines that you need one is a batch pipeline and one is sort of like a streaming pipeline um and what you need in order to do this is that firstly you need uh for feature drift you need the distribution of the data that the model is trained on and also you need the distribution of the data that the model is used to make predictions and so uh, in order to get the first one, you first of all have to have like a data dump, uh, like some snapshot of your model predictions every time they do it, like you save it to S3. And then uh, that's your feature drift. Uh, sorry, that's your uh, distribution at prediction time. Uh, the training one is uh, the one that you actually just put in once when the model is actually uploaded to the platform. And so every single day, you can think of it like that. You have a pipeline that runs a Metaflow that compares the data on uh, on prediction time, like today, like the past day versus the uh, the, the data that the model was trained on. And um, so all our batch pipelines that do this run on Metaflow. And so we have like a little over 10 pipelines that are doing this right now. They run on a daily basis. I see. Quite interesting. Okay. Uh, besides the uh, Metaflow, is there anything that, uh, uh, what are the, um, as the ML ops, what do you think is the most challenging ML, uh, ML th uh, concept or ML project that uh, you think is an obstacle that uh, uh, somebody who will jump into this uh, career as an ML ops should know about? Ah, uh, okay. This is, it's very hard because I think a lot of parts of the ML ops stack are just, their own unique puzzles that need to be solved in their own unique way. Um, mm -hmm. I think it so depends like how the, the the answer depends on how advanced your organization is because if you're starting from scratch, then everything is hard, you know, like model registry, model experiment tracking, you know, uh, building data pipelines, all this because you have to start from scratch. But once you reach like a more reasonable scale organization like Moneyland, I think uh, for me right now, what I see is like the biggest uh, the biggest and most difficult thing to implement is actually a feature store. Yeah. So, uh, what a feature? What is a feature store? You can think of it like a glorified database to store your ML features. Um, let's just look at it from uh structured data, a very simple sense. You could have your features for training your credit scoring model, and so, uh, what? What? Okay. Why do you need a feature store in the first place? So, when it comes to building your model, if you notice that. You could have multiple data scientists working on a model and they all could be coming up with their own data sets and their own features. And the biggest issue I uh, that, that you come to notice is that there's this uh, implementation drift. So to implement the same feature, a data scientist want A and data scientist B could come up with their own interpretations. Um, and that's because, and ideally, oh, there should only be one specific implementation of a feature, not multiple. Uh, it gets even more complicated when you know the models that the person that as uh, for example for a particular model, the person who built the model and also created the pre-processing pipeline left, and then that knowledge is all sort of lost. So, how do we make sure that we don't have silos that prevent us from iterating on future models at the same in the future? Uh, this is where features are found. So features are basically stores all this data, and it's like a centralized store for all your data, and it's split into two parts. One is an offline feature store and one is an online feature store. So offline feature store is uh, 
basically uh, uh you can think of it like a snowflake table or bigquery table that you get everyone to pull from the only difference is that you have ml pipelines that uh do pre-processing that feed into it it's really the same as any other data warehouse that you have uh for example you could use snowflake for your data warehouse for your on offline feature store um that's not that difficult to actually build but the most difficult part would be the online feature store now why do you need an online feature store so an offline feature store is used for analytic and historical data analysis. So if you know, like you want to do model training, or if you want to analyze some features that we use in a model, you go to the offline feature store. But when it comes to the online feature store, you use it for real-time inference. So meaning uh, that same data that is in the offline feature store is actually replicated in uh, a, a, a faster querying database, like for example, Redis and but the, the, the key thing here is that they have different SLEs. The offline feature store has a requirement that you store historical data, but the online feature store has the requirement that you store the absolute latest features. So that that's really difficult to maintain because like, you know, some features they get updated once a day. So I think, so your, your staleness is referred to like, staleness here would be like, oh, I mean, the, the most, the, the, the freshest data is just the data from within the past day. But if your data gets updated every couple seconds, then how do you maintain that and how do you ensure that it's as fresh as possible? Uh, that's the very difficult part. And even uh, internally, we are still trying to work on a feature store. But mm -hmm. for me, this online and online feature store particularly is the hardest part um, because it, it gets even more complicated because you can think of it like, hey, you have one pipeline to create this feature. But then this pipeline now needs to basically create offline and online, uh, so real streaming pipelines and batch pipelines. Mm -hmm. So how do you build a single so single pipeline that does both? Uh, it gets very complicated. And also further from that, uh, what about data management? So when a data scientist does like, experiments, they might be always building and creating new features on the offline feature store, but then when things actually only go to production, like okay, this model is like worthwhile, we're gonna we're gonna push it to production. That's when you have to start replicate putting data into the online feature store. It gets more complex about that. Like how do you enable uh, sharing of the data between the two databases, and also how what process do you have in place to uh, promote data sets as uh, data features from offline to online feature store? It's a very um, complex thing. Yeah, yeah sounds like very complicated. So the the server like, like you say where you join the Wazi for about Nigeria. How many people is your team now? Uh my team right now is <laughs> I think it's six people total. I I'm just double checking. I don't want my boss <laughs> to come murder me for not knowing how many people exactly we have. Uh but yeah, it it should be including myself, it should be it should be is it six? Is it six? No, it's five. Yeah. So just increase one person. <laughs> uh, people come and go. Okay. Um, yeah, yeah, people come and go. Um, uh, we had a couple of people leave, and also uh, we hired recently. But yeah, the the team is I would say reasonably small. Mm -hmm. Uh, for the things we have to do. Uh, hopefully, I think in the future, if we can get more headcounts, be better. Mm -hmm. Especially if we we try expanding into um, uh, doing things uh, more complex things, and also managing more and more pipelines. Like for example, right now I have to manage multiple 
compute clusters for model training and I have to lead uh, and maintain all the tooling that I created for Metaflow and it's a lot of work. It's very fun though. Uh, but yeah, I think always it can it, it's always better if you can have more people at the same time. But uh, it's a bit more difficult to hire for MLOps, mm -hmm. I would say. Yep. I, I can talk about that um, because I actually hired my colleague uh, in November, November like later part of last year uh, for, into the MLOps team. And so I was part of the interview process, the final interview process. And I interviewed a couple of people and just looking at the skill sets that were out there in Malaysia and what we had, what we could work with. And also what were the expectations for our team with how we do things. Um, frankly, it was, very, yeah, it was a very difficult process because a lot of people uh, came from a bunch of different backgrounds and they had definitely had skills. Um, but a lot of times after interviews, what I saw noticed was that it left me questioning like, hey, could this person actually do the job? Could they like deal with all the uncertainty and the difficulty here? And I just, you know, if I give them a ticket, can they finish it? Like, uh, I, I realized that we still lack a lot of people, qualified people to do get into MLOps. Uh, and, it, and it's, it's really nothing wrong. It's just that, you know, in Malaysia, you don't have tech pool. Your tech pool is way smaller than other countries, right? You don't have many people working in tech. In order to even find a software engineer, it's really like a super difficult and hard thing. But now you're looking for a software engineer who sort of knows DevOps and machine learning at the same time. So... Yeah, um, talk, talk about that. Uh, uh, I'm quite interested to know, especially uh, like what is the things that you look for when you interview someone to become an ML, uh, ML ops engineer? What are the traits or uh, characteristics or personality or what are the things that you look for actually? Okay. Um, so uh, to be honest, if you're looking for personality, I think my boss could do a way better job because I'm still I'm still very new into this field. Like I only have like ne nearly two years of experience. But uh, when it comes to technical, I can sort of answer that quite well. Um, for for me personally, when I look at technical skills, I look at can you write pretty decent Python code? Can you at least create a CLI application? Do you know how to package a Python application? Um, do you know how to run that Python application within a Docker image at least? Um, then other things, testing, do you know how to test code? Um, it's actually a really, really difficult skill to find, people who actually test their code, uh, especially in the machine learning space because it's such a it's such a niche field and it's also not really widely there aren't widely known techniques on it, but recently there's been like a research a, a surge in people coming up with ways in which to test your machine learning models. I actually gave a talk at Frontline uh, on this exact uh, concept. Uh, I can share with you a repo about it as well. But uh, those are the main things I look for as well. But that's like the very, very basic things. Um, other things I want to know is uh, how well do you know AWS, for example, like cloud providers. I think that's a really important skill as well because um, it's not necessary that the things you do, like a DevOps person is always going to be there to set them up and do it for you. Our DevOps team is very uh, busy as it is. And so as the MLOps team, you really have to have a core understanding of AWS, you know, like, can you set up an AWS S3 bucket on your own? Do you know how to set up access? Do you, how to, do you know how to set up fine grain access control? Do you know how to set up cross-account access? Uh, that's the very basic things that I have to do all the time. And then uh, also Terraform. Uh, so we don't use the G uh, the cloud like uh, we we use infrastructure as a code to deploy all our, our resources like the cloud. So for example, you want to create S3 bucket, you have to write Terraform code to 
provision it. So do you know at least how it works? Um, but then again, this uh, it's not a must skill for me. Uh, this is something that you can learn on the job as well. But at least a fundamental understanding of how AWS works and the big things, you know, like Lambda functions. I want to see that you at least have some projects where you did uh, utilize AWS uh, on your own. And then um, that's mainly on the skill set. I, I don't need you to know Kubernetes in and out or anything. Like, it's okay. Like, I, I still on my own barely feel like I barely know Kubernetes, but I, I've done a lot of deployments and Helm charts for and deploy stuff for Kubernetes, but I still feel like I don't know it much. So I, I'm never going to ask you to uh, explain the difference between specific things in Kubernetes and the interview. Don't, don't worry, we don't do that. Um, and so uh, in terms of technical wise, that's that's it. But then there's also like uh, uh, another part of the technical interview, which is a case study that we give you to do. You know, for example, like how would you deploy this machine learning model to an API endpoint? Uh, then again, you, so adding on, you need to know how APIs work. Like how do you build API endpoints? And then how does CI/CD work? But I, I as a bare minimum, I think those are the main things. I, I don't need you to know how staging environments work and how production environments work because I realized that during the interview process, I at Moneyland we have uh, in our AI team we operate in two AWS accounts, so we have a staging account and a production account. So a lot of people during the interview process never realized that you could you, you could work in more than one AWS account uh, because they never really had this. They always basically they always just have one AWS account that they do the cloud with. And so uh, I realized that was the wrong thing to to ask and demand people know. Uh, and, so, and and I, I was. Yeah, so, yeah, sorry. So do you think since you mentioned quite a number of uh, skill sets related to cloud-based like AWS, so do you think uh, all these uh, fundamental certifications from AWS or GCP or Azure would be you know, something that a fresh graduate would probably would put some time or maybe to get those certifications? Yeah, I think, I think it's definitely worth it to get a certification, but it's not a necessary thing because I don't have an AWS certification, but mm -hmm. I still... I, I learned by doing on the on the job and on the project and uh, doing project based. But if you're trying to get into it, I think it's a really great way to get the necessary cloud skills. But uh, it's not um. It, but I'm not gonna hire you, for example, if you have a AWS cloud certificate. That doesn't really tell me much because like if you can't explain it to me and you can't build things with it, then it doesn't really matter, right? Because uh, mm -hmm. I don't want people to just chase certificates like it's trophies and then not actually learn how to build stuff. Cool. Uh, I, uh, I mean, uh, looking at our, our time, so I have two questions to go. So basically, yeah. the first question is, uh, looking at yourself now with like working experience two years into 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 as as an ML in, uh, ops engineer, uh, if if you be to be aspired to be a, a successful or something uh, that uh, you think that uh, should how, what it takes to be a successful of uh, or to be good in this uh, ML ops engineer as a career, what what what, what do you think that uh, Defined to be a person who is successful in this as a successful as uh, ML engineer. Mm -hmm. Um, an ML ops engineer, I think that's really good because there's a lot of R and D in the job, meaning you have to look at tools and compare them and see which tools are the best. And a lot of the creators of the tools will tell you, you know, that 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 tool does heaven and earth when it actually doesn't. Um, I think one of the main ways, one of the very very important skills is deciphering whether this tool is actually going to solve your business problem. Um, having that skill set is such a difficult thing because, um, you know, you obviously you want to do all, you want to do a POC on this tool, this great tool and all that. It's going to work, work and all that, but it takes a lot of time. And you got to understand that if, especially during this economic situation, um, 
you doing R&D projects aren't really bringing any business value. So being able to take a POC, uh, being able to go through the process where you can decipher whether it's good enough and then bring it to POC and then start bringing value is such an important thing. Um, and that requires you to basically do the minimum to get what you need to, to achieve. Uh, a lot of people I, I've seen also had to work with, they don't have this ability in that they always want to do complex things because for the sake of complexity, they don't want to do simple things because it's like, oh no, it's the, the way to do what I wanted to do is actually much simpler. But it's okay. You don't have to do complex work all the time. Doing the simplest thing is actually better because it helps you move faster and you get to learn how to solve your problem quicker. Yeah. So that's like a main skill set, I would say, that's a requirement for MLSNG. I don't think like that's like a, you need to know tool X or Y. I think you will learn it. Tools come and go. You just need to know how to use them. Uh, as long as you know how to pro program, you'll be fine either way. But like some fundamental skills like this, uh, when it comes to picking tools to use, uh, is such a vital thing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I, I as I can see now, um... Because I, I can I, I imagine that Emerald is still something quite relatively new and it's definitely not something that uh, one fixed solution for uh, for one uh, for all organizations. It depends on what the organization is doing and then maybe different different Emerald of technology will be more relevant to, to I mean like you said, need to do some sort of R and D and then choose the best technology to be used. So in that sense, my last question of the day is uh, how do you keep yourself updated with all these current technology and trends? Okay, yeah, um, it's a very, very difficult question. I think it's impossible to actually keep up to date with anything. <laughs> with everything, um, yeah, I for me personally, I just keep up to date with whatever tools or technologies that I think are interesting. Like, for example, I like keeping up to date with uh, how recommendation systems at companies are moving along. So, you know, I have people on Substack or LinkedIn that I follow who talk about it a lot. And I basically read all their stuff that they, they talk about there. Um, other things that I also like to do uh, to keep up to date would be uh, watching PyData or PyCon videos. Like, I love watching those. I think I, I try to watch one like at least every week or what. Or on the job, actually, when I need to do something, I usually refer to a PyCon talk or a PyData talk because they give so much information in such a short period of time. Um, and yeah, I think those are the main ways that I keep up to date with okay. uh, MLOps. Yeah, I mean, starting from the... Uh... Starting from the earlier when we discussed about that, you're not liking programming, you don't know what you're doing in life, and then from now where you're totally into it, it's totally like a change, it's totally 180 degree change in it. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think when looking back, uh, it's, I think the most important thing is that you found what you like to do, your passion about that slowly, once you found something you like to do, whatever that you do will be, you know, it's just, just enjoying the process. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I, I think I, I hopefully people listening here realize that uh, they learn that you know you don't have to do super well in life early on. You don't have to get like straight A's. I never got straight A's during SPM as well. I even A levels I didn't do really well, but I still you know I managed to get into the field and do relatively well. I would say, uh, yeah, and I hope other people take that on and just realize that you know you can do it if you just believe in yourself enough. Great. I think that we end with that note that <laughs> doing something that you love to do, passionate about that is something that uh, you, you go bring you a long way in your career. So yeah. thank, you, thank you very much, Yudesh, for the time today. I think uh, it's, a, it's a been a very fruitful discussion. Uh, maybe I, I think our listener is uh, not enough of your vast knowledge and uh, experience. 
maybe we can do a part two in, in the future. Yeah, yeah, sure. That'd be great. Uh, thank you so much for inviting me. I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, thank you again, Yudish. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and you would like to help support the podcast, please share it with others, post about it on social media, or leave a rating and review. Follow this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify Podcasts. If you have any comments or recommendations, I'll be glad to receive your voice messages. Send me your voice messages via the link in the show notes. To catch all latest episodes, you can follow this show on our website www.aimldatatalks.com or our social media such as Instagram or Twitter with the handler at AIMLDatatalks. Thanks again. I will see you next time.